Well, I invite you to turn in your Bibles to Philippians chapter 1, Philippians 1, and you'll want to look at God's Word with us as we go through a passage there. So these guys have some Bibles. They're going to make their way to the back. If you need a Bible, just get their attention, put your hand up, they'll get you one of those. Keep it, bring it back every week. It's our gift to you. We want everyone to own a copy of God's Word. Philippians chapter 1. As Pastor Larry mentioned, our members should have received an email yesterday with a link to join us for this afternoon's family meeting by Zoom. So if you're able, I encourage you to do so. I do that for all of our family meetings, in particular though for this one as I have a news item that will affect an important goal in our 10-year plan that I want as many as possible to be aware of. So if you can join us for the meeting I'll uh, tell you what that is this afternoon at 2.30. I know that some of us do not have internet at our homes. We did not lose power this week, but we did lose internet, and I still don't have internet. So I'm going to come to the office this afternoon for using the internet here, and I heard from a few of you that at home you don't have internet as well, so you're welcome to do that. You're welcome to come here and use the internet here for our meeting at 2.30 this afternoon. Also, I want to extend a personal invitation to join Kim and me for the brunch that Pastor Larry mentioned. That is uh, two weeks from yesterday on Saturday the 11th. We already have several who have signed up, but if you've never been to one of these, we'd love to have you, so please register this afternoon. Next week, three of our four pastors are going to be gone. (laughs) I don't think that's ever happened. Pastor Larry and Julie are going to be in South Carolina for a special event with their daughter Susie, who's there at college. Pastor Rich and Tracy and Kim and I are going to be in Florida for the dedication of a new auditorium at the church led by our former associate pastor, Matt Owen. It has been, can you believe, nine years since they relocated. So next week for both services, Dr. Mark Snowberger from Detroit Baptist Seminary is going to be here. He'll preach in this hour and he'll teach in the next. Today we conclude our mini-series on the topic of prayer. Last week I recommended a book called Praying with Paul, to which I'm indebted for some of today's content, and I think we still have some copies of that book in the Resource Center, so if you're interested, you can check that out. In two weeks, we're going to return to the book of Acts. Uh, As I said, I won't be here next week. Two weeks, we'll return to the book of Acts, and we'll look to complete that study in the months ahead. Philippians 1, look at verse 9. And this is my prayer. Now that is then followed by the content of what Paul prays for, which is the subject of today's message. But before he gives the prayer itself in just three verses, verses 9 through 11, the word and at the beginning of verse 9 connects the prayer to what precedes. So before giving the prayer, he says in verse 9, and this is my prayer, because he's already alluded to it earlier. Back in verse 3, he said, I thank my God every time I remember you. In all my prayers for all of you, I always pray with joy. One commentator has summarized well what all Paul would have remembered that would move him to thankfulness for the people in this church in the city of Philippi. He would have remembered, for example, a woman named Lydia. 
when the Lord opened the heart of a lady named Lydia and she and her entire household received Jesus Christ as Savior. Lydia was the first convert in the continent of Europe. She showed hospitality to Paul and his associates before and after they were imprisoned and the church probably met at her home. He would remember the Philippian jailer. Paul could not have forgotten being thrown into that Philippian jail, as you can read about in Acts chapter 16, and he was put in stocks after he had been stripped and his back was beaten into a bloody pulp. But out of that experience, the jailer and his household were converted to Christ, and they had shown compassion to Paul and one of his associates, Silas, by caring for their wounds and feeding them. He would have remembered past gifts from this Philippian church. He would have remembered the many times when the Philippians sent money to help him. These times are mentioned in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, where it's said that the Macedonian churches sent generous gifts out of their deep poverty. Philippi is one of those Macedonian churches. And then he would be thinking about the present situation because the occasion for which this letter was written is a present, another gift from them. Their most recent gift, that was the occasion of this letter, would also have filled Paul's, with, Paul with loving thoughts of these Philippian Christians. So he has good reason to be thankful and to be joyful when he prays for them because their relationship is bound up in these gospel activities. Paul brought the gospel to them, they responded, and they in turn have helped Paul tangibly in their now common mission to spread the gospel together. So he says in verse 5 that the reason I'm so thankful and joyful over you is, verse 5, because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. Your partnership in the gospel. Now, I want you to recognize, friends, when he is thanking these people for their partnership, he's thanking regular folk like you. I would include myself in that, but unfortunately, the way things work in our culture, I don't get to be included in regular folk in the church setting. You're, you're a priest. <laughs> you're the clergy. And so sometimes people get the idea that the, the work of the Lord gets done by professionals. And it actually gets done by God's people, all of us, who are indispensable to the Lord's work. And Paul is included. These are just regular people in the church in the city of Philippi. And he says, I thank God because of your partnership with me in the gospel. Yes, I, Paul, have a role to play, a special role indeed. But that can't move forward without us partnering together. That word translated partnership is sometimes translated participation. It comes from a Greek word that many of you have heard, koinonia, sometimes also translated as fellowship. So our fellowship here, and I thank the Lord that we have a number of relational opportunities on the calendar that Pastor Larry mentioned. Those relationships then foster bonding that then helps us together to partner, to move the Lord's work forward, and they are strategic for that reason. And sometimes they surround food, and we have a good time together, and I'm thankful for all of that. But all of that, friends, please understand, is more than just a potluck. 
The purpose is much greater than that. And they have, these Philippians have been partners to the present day until now, the end of verse 5 says. And he's sure, is Paul, that it's going to continue. And so he says in verse 6, being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. And so Paul cannot but help to have fond feelings for these brothers and sisters because they are his fellow servants in God's work. So verse 7, it is right for me to feel this way about all of you. All of you share in God's grace with me. Now note that word, share. All of you share in God's grace with me. Sharing with me, that's koinonia again. You are my comrades in the Lord's mission. So, verse 8, God can testify how I long for all of you with the affection of Christ Jesus. And with that context then, verse 9 says, and this is my prayer. So all of that is how I think about you Philippian brothers and sisters. But this now, starting in verse 9, is the content that I pray on your behalf. We're going to look at that this morning. Let's bow and ask the Lord to help us then. Father, we thank you that we're here. We thank you that you've given us the desire, the ability, the freedom to be here without harassment. We thank you, Lord, for your word to instruct us. Lord, you tell us to, to pray. Your, your word is filled with examples of, of prayer. But Lord, you have not left us to just figure out how to pray and for what to pray on our own. But like all things that you require in the Christian life, you have made it known, you have revealed it in your word. And so we thank you that we can open this now. Look at this sample prayer from your servants Help us to learn from it in our own prayer lives. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. Now I say in the outline that you should have received when you came in, first of all this, that we should ask for integrity. Verse 9 again, and this is my prayer, that your love may abound more and more. Now I say this is a matter of integrity because asking for more love assumes you already have love. And now it's a matter of increasing what you already have. You have the character of the God who is love. The root of the word integrity is integer. It's a math term, and it refers to whole numbers. The word itself implies wholeness. Integrity then requ requires wholeness or consistency of character. If you are children of the God who is love, then integrity requires that you, you show that love. You have it, now show it. And Paul says, in increasing measure. And the Bible does indeed say that we have the character of, of God if we belong to Christ. Peter said, you participate in the divine nature. Doesn't mean that we are divine. Doesn't mean we've become God. But it does mean that there are attributes of God, character qualities of God that we can, can emulate. Chief among those is God's love. John says in 1 John 4, Dear friends, let us love one another, for love comes from God. Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. Whoever does not love does not know God because God is love. So as I say, participating in the divine nature doesn't mean we become divine. 
But if you belong to God, you can emulate His character. We have God the Holy Spirit indwelling us, and we show that fact by displaying His fruit in our lives. Many of you know that the Bible refers to something called the fruit of the Spirit, and it is at the top of the list of these nine things, love. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. We should pray that we live consistent with who we are, and we should pray for other Christians that they do so, as we each have the nature of the God who is love. Christians do not need the ability to love. Rather, we need to exercise the responsibility to demonstrate love, and we need to pray that that happens in increasing measure. And why do we pray that that happens? Because doing it is not easy. Displaying that love is not automatic. And so Paul says, I'm praying that you will continue to have love show up in your lives and you will do so more and more. And so we should ask for integrity, which means asking that, as I say in the outline, our love grows. That is that our love expands. Paul says abounding more and more, that your love will abound more and more. That it it will expand into more and more areas and for more and more people. You already have love. You've already shown love in your partnership with me, Philippians. I pray that that will continue and that it will expand More areas, more and more people. And this needs to be sought and pursued and prayed for because even though we have the Holy Spirit whose fruit is love and we are children of the God who Himself is love, we also still struggle with the sin nature. And so we can fail to live consistent with our new natures. A good working definition of biblical love is the one that I've given over the years. Love is doing what is in the best interest of another, doing what's in the best interest of another. Love is not devoid of feeling, but it's not primarily or first emotional, but rather volitional. We choose to love as God chose to love us and so took action as a result of that choice on our behalf. So the most well-known verse in the Bible teaches this. God so loved the world that He gave His one and only Son That whoever believes in Him shall not perish but have eternal life. Notice, He loved, He gave. He loved, He did something. John 3.16, there's another John 3.16 in your Bible. 1 John 3.16 that says this, this is how we know what love is. He did something. He laid down His life for us. So how are we then going to show the love of God? We ought to be willing to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. So there is simply no way around the truth that love is doing for others, and that requires a willingness to give, to sacrifice for their sake, sacrifice time, sacrifice hobbies, sacrifice me time at times, And often many times. 
for the sake of other people. If you're a parent, you know about sacrificing your time and lots of other stuff for other people. We're called to this life, and we love it because we love the God for whom we do it, and we love the people who benefit from it. Remember Jesus said the two greatest commandments are love God and then love your neighbor. And so we're called to this life to sacrifice because we love God and because we love the people who benefit from it. And it's why I asked Pastor Larry to read those two verses from Romans chapter 12 earlier. The first of which says, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercies, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. This is, friends, literally our calling. We are called to give up lesser things for the greater things that Christ has modeled and He is doing in His world. This is literally our calling. Here's what Peter said in 1 Peter chapter 2. To this you were called. Because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in His steps. We're called to sacrifice. First for God, in turn for what God cares about, what God is doing. Investing in others, in His work. Our calling, the Latin word is vox, so we get voice and, and thus the association with calling. Our calling, our vox, or our vocation comes from that. Your vocation is in theory your calling. And you say, I thought my vocation was my job and it doesn't feel like a calling. I, I get that in a fallen world. But in an ideal world, that would, be the, that would be the idea. Our calling, our vox, our vocation as Christians is to sacrifice for a greater person and cause. But we, each of us, easily gets pulled away from our calling, our vocation, to avocations. You put the A in front of it and it negates it. That is, that's not your calling. <laughs> An avocation is literally not your calling. Now, avocations are in the grand scheme of things, unimportant activities to which we devote, unfortunately, so much time, money, and effort. If our love, doing what's in the best interest of others, is going to grow, it will of necessity mean sacrificing avocations for our vocation, things that are not our calling for things that are. It doesn't mean eliminating those other things, but it does mean using them for your calling, not in place of it. And so, for example, using rest and using vacation and using fun to bond, to create relationships for mission. Remember I said earlier, we have a, a calendar that's filled with events so that we can be in this relational space with each other. But the idea there is for us to bond for a larger purpose. And I would recommend to you, friends, that you do that with your families. You do that with your, your children. Purposeful recreation and avocations for the larger purpose. 
If we're going to get that, then it's not enough to pray for ourselves or others that we love more and better because the truth is we can get love wrong. We can think of love as first feeling and indiscriminating in the way we display that love. And so Paul goes on to say at the end of verse 9, verse 9, I I pray that your love may abound more and more, but then he adds this, in knowledge and depth of insight. So we should ask for integrity, that our love grow and that our love grasps. Since love is one of the most overused and abused words in the English language, and even in Paul's day it was susceptible to be misunderstood, he says the love we're to show is to be understood by knowledge and depth of insight. D.A. Carson says in that book that I mentioned earlier, Praying with Paul, perhaps we will get at Paul's point rather quickly if we replace the phrase with the opposite qualities. Paul does not pray that their love might abound more and more in ignorance and insensitivity, or in stupidity and ham-fistedness, or in cheap sentimentality and myopic nostalgia. He prays rather that their love might abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight. The ever-increasing love for which Paul prays is to be discriminating. It's to be constrained by knowledge and depth of insight. Without the constraints of knowledge and insight, love very easily degenerates into mawkish sentimentality or into the kind of mushy pluralism that the world often confuses with love. Christian love will be accompanied by knowledge, that is, in the way Paul uses it, that mature grasp of the meaning of the gospel that is the fruit of sound instruction and full experience. And Christian love is also accompanied by literally all insight. That's literally what it says. Instead of depth of insight, it's all insight. And it's really referring to a breadth of insight, moral perception across the entire gamut of life's experiences. Clearly, knowledge and discernment without love could easily become overbearing. But love without knowledge and discernment is soon a parody of itself. The Christian love for which Paul prays is regulated by knowledge of the gospel and comprehensive moral insight. These constraints do not stifle love, far from it. They ensure its purity and value. Such love, Paul insists, must abound more and more. So Christians by virtue of being children of God and having the Holy Spirit, have the capacity to love. What we need, Paul is saying here, is the the understanding to love well. We have the capacity to love. What we need is the capacity and the understanding necessary to love well. Permissive love is not godly love parents. We sometimes make up our own definition of love. It's my son or my daughter, it's what they say they need, and so I give it to them. But it may not be best for them. It may not be according to knowledge. It may not be according to what God says is going to move them in the direction that He has designed for all of us. And we need constraints on our expression of love in order to avoid loving in a harmful way or even in a selfish way. 
Paul is apparently identifying their love with the actions that he has described already. The context of him giving this prayer is him setting up the context in verses 3 through 8 that I already went through with you, which is about their partnership in the gospel. And so I want you to have this knowledge and depth of insight such that you make choices that are in keeping with that mission to which we are mutually called together. In the context of verse 9, pointing all the way to back, back to verse 3 and what was said there, he's asking God that these Christian brothers and sisters will be motivated by love, but not just love for anything, but love in particular for what he, God, loves, his fame and his work in his world. In effect, this is saying in this passage to do what I've been urging for over two decades now at this church. Live for Christ and others by living for the mission. And so here it's increasingly prioritizing those things related to, if you will, Great Commission Incorporated for the love of God and people. We pray for integrity that we will increasingly and widely demonstrate in our lives and the ordering of our lives the love we have from God in a thoughtful way. But to what end is all of that done? Why do we put thought and effort into mapping our lives so that we love more and better? Verse 10 gives the reason. Verse 10. So that you may be able to discern what is best. That is, we ask for integrity, and I say in your outline, we ask for maturity. It appears that discerning what is best in every instance is not always straightforward, and that's why in order to be able to do it, you have to be cultivating a heart of love for God and for others and His mission to help you decide, to help you determined to help you discern. The word discern means to differentiate, to separate. We often have to make decisions about things that are both good, but we want to choose what is better. In fact, we want to choose what's best. But we can only do that if we have a mindset that's focused on God's priority of loving Him and others, especially as demonstrated in partnership in the mission like the Philippians here. People committed in that way are then able to take in all the factors and make a God-honoring decision, and sometimes quickly, even when it's a big decision. Going back about 23 years now, I recall discussing with Pastor Rich the possibility of me leaving the church at which both of our families had served for 15 years to plant this one with the blessing of our parent church. I had recently had discussion with our pastor there about that. And when I mentioned it to Rich, he was able to quickly say, count me in. And I'm so glad that he did as our church has been blessed because he and Tracy are, are here. But that meant uprooting from a familiar and good situation for the unknown. We never planted a church. So we're going to go, their family, a couple more families, and that's it, and let's see what happens, was the idea. 
But because the loving heart was shaped by knowledge and depth of insight, it was almost a no-brainer. He went home and shared the news with Tracy, and she had the same quick and eager and willing reaction, and for the same reason. Now, Jess was, I think, in like going into seventh grade, and so they said, hey, uh, <laughs> we're going with two other families to start a church. And Jess did the math, and she said, now, Uncle Kenny is going to be preaching, and dad is going to be handling the finances, so he'll be counting the offering. Mom's going to be in the nursery, assuming we have any babies. Will I be the only person he's preaching to? <laughs> and then, in all seriousness, I mean, what about, say, a youth group? And so she was the only teenager in the youth group. God sent Pastor Larry and Julie, who did a very similar quick decision. Yes, this is God's work moving forward. We're going to sacrifice for it, and they have for 21 years. And they were our youth leaders, and they had one teen. And then when a, a, two more teens showed up a few months later, I immediately told Pastor Larry, you should write a book, How to Triple Your Youth Group <laughs> in, in Two Months. If your practice has been to serve the cause of Christ like the Philippians did and you've ordered your life around his priorities, then new decisions are made in that mental and moral context. You ask yourself, does this advance the cause of Jesus? And that becomes your main and only concern. And if it does, count me in. The pursuit of such excellence, what Paul calls here, what is best, does not turn on transparent distinctions between right and wrong. It turns rather on delicate choices that reflect one's entire value system, one's set of priorities, one's heart and mind. This is why Paul prays that the love of the Philippians might abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight. He wants their hearts and minds to become profoundly Christian, for otherwise they will not discern and approve what is best. D.A. Carson goes on to say, perhaps some practical examples will help to clarify Paul's prayer. And he asks, what do you do with your time? I'm glad I'm quoting him as this is the guilt portion of the, of the sermon. He's making you feel guilty. What do you do with your time? How many hours a week do you spend with your children have you spent any time in the past two months witnessing to someone about the gospel? How much time have you spent watching television and or other forms of personal relaxation? Are you committed in your use of time to what is best? How are your relationships within your family? Do you pause now and then and reflectively think through what you can do to strengthen ties with your spouse and your children? How do you decide what to do with your money? Do you give a set percentage, say 10%, of your income to the Lord's work, however begrudgingly, and then regard the rest of your income as your own? Or do you regard yourself as the Lord's steward so that all the money you earn is ultimately His? Are you delighted when you find yourself able to put much more of your money into strategic ministry simply because you love to invest in eternity? At what points in your life do you cheerfully decide, for no other reason than you are a Christian, to step outside your comfort zone, living and serving in painful or difficult self-denial? 
Behind your answers to all of these questions are choices, he says. The last thing I want to do is to generate a load of guilt, he says, because of the choices constantly before us, choices we frequently fail to exploit for the glory of God. In fact, I hesitated ever including these paragraphs for just that reason. Feelings of guilt will not by themselves help us make the right choices. They may simply increase our stress and resentments. But if our love abounds more and more, shaped all the while by knowledge and moral insight, then these are the kinds of choices we will be wanting to make. And we will be wanting to make them well. They are the kinds of choices that cannot be made on the basis of mere law. They spring from a heart transformed by God's grace. Now it's important to notice that Paul does not pray for a checklist of things to go through in order to precisely determine whether we're mature or not. And I think part of the reason is that all of us are different. And all of us are in different circumstances, and so a checklist will not work for everyone, perhaps even won't work for most. We each have to decide how much time, for example, we sleep based upon how much sleep we need, and that's different for each of us. We each have to decide how much time we can give directly to the Lord's work in light of our other responsibilities that He's assigned to us at home and, and at work. The point then is not that you do things exactly as I do or exactly as anyone else, but rather that you do your best for the Lord because you're discerning what is best and you're able to do that because you love the Lord and others and want to see His fame in His world and influence on people increase. At our parent church years ago, we had a funding campaign for what became the building in which they now meet. The slogan for that campaign was this, not equal gifts, but equal sacrifice. Not equal gifts, but equal sacrifice. I have often thought that was a good way to think about our stewardship. Stewardship means managing God's stuff for Him. And that's a good way to think about it. And it appears Paul did the same. In fact, in speaking of money and an offering for the Lord's work, he said this, our desire is not that others might be relieved while you're hard-pressed, but that there might be equality. The idea is that we all equally sacrifice. We all have different amounts that we can sacrifice. So the amounts, the gifts are not equal, but the sacrifices. And I believe that this applies to all areas of stewardship, time, talent, and, and treasure. We might not have the same amount of any of those to put directly in the Lord's work, but if we have other God-given obligations, we should still be sacrificing. And the amount there is uniform. And it's as much as we can. <laughs> as much time as I can. As much treasure as I can. As much talent as I can. Given the unique circumstances in which God has placed me. And so we ask for integrity. We ask for maturity. More quickly, we ask for consistency. Verse 10, the purpose for this love abounding more and more in knowledge and depth of insight is so that you may be able to discern what is best and may be pure and blameless for the day of Christ. 
Now, when verse 10 connects so that you're able to discern and you may be pure with the word and, turns out the word and is not actually there in, in the original. And so it is better to think of this not as two things. You, you have this love abounding in knowledge and depth of insight so that one, you'll be able to discern, and then two, you'll be pure and blameless. But rather, it's this, that you'll be, you'll, you'll be able to discern in order to be pure and blameless. Able to discern in order to be pure and blameless. And then in verse 11, you see the phrase, the fruit of righteousness, which is parallel with pure and blameless. These three things will result from the love abounding in knowledge and depth of insight. And as we then have the ability to make choices regarding what is best, the result is pure, blameless, fruit of righteousness, consistency with the character of God. And this is all for the day of Jesus Christ, Paul says. That is, with a view to the day of Jesus Christ. With a view to what it is we are going to be one day in that day. That's guaranteed, we saw in verse 6. The work that God has begun in us, He is going to bring to completion until the day of Jesus Christ. One commentator says, Paul does not appeal to the day of Christ, the day of His return, in order to introduce a veiled threat. He's not saying you readily or you really must start showing more signs of this righteous conduct I've been talking about, or you may get caught at the end and face horrible judgment, or at the very least have a great deal of explaining to do. No, he's saying something that most Christians will find even more compelling. Paul is telling them that they must live with a view to the day of Christ. That is, they must live in such a way that they show that they remember that they are moving toward that day and they are utterly constrained by it. On that day, in a new heaven and new earth where righteousness dwells, the fruit of our lives will be entirely righteous. Even now then, Paul says, Christians will live with that day in view and produce much righteous fruit in anticipation of that day. We should ask in our prayers for ourselves and for other brothers and sisters for integrity, for maturity, for consistency in our lives with the character of God. And then lastly, for doxology. Doxa is the Greek word in your New Testament for glory, praise. Praise is our response to God's glory. And so you sometimes see them together and you look at the end of verse 11. Through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. You see, friends, none of this is produced by us. But by the Lord in and through us. And to Him belongs the glory then. And so we ask Him for this kind of fruit in our lives. We ask Him for this kind of fruit in the lives of our brothers and sisters. And having asked Him then, we give Him the praise for what it is He produces. We are, in just a moment, going to sing the doxology as a fitting closing to this message. Here's your take-home truth. Our prayers should be primarily devoted 
to spiritual concerns. Now notice I say primarily devote. Not exclusively. We have physical concerns. We have medical concerns. But I wanted to do this series, this brief series, partly so that we could change the priority of those in our prayer lives and in the prayer life of our church. Right now, the prayer list of our church is almost entirely dominated by physical concerns. And yet, if you look at the prayers, certainly the prayers of Paul in the New Testament and other prayers throughout the Bible, they're dominated primarily by spiritual concerns. And so, yes, we ought to pray for the physical matters. But we as a church need to change now that priority. And over the next year in our community groups, we're going to be doing that. We're going to be looking to have the prayer time focus more on matters like this than only on the physical and material concerns. Now, none of this matters for you if you do not have a relationship with Jesus Christ. This love that's to abound more and more is predicated on the idea that you have love, and you have that because you have the Holy Spirit, and you have the Holy Spirit because you've come to Jesus. And so before I pray, I want to offer an opportunity for any who came into this room without knowing Jesus Christ as Savior to come to Him. And so you do that by realizing that you are a sinner, that you are in need of the work that the Savior has done for you on the cross dying for your sin. And so you recognize that Jesus' death on the cross was not someone being at the wrong place at the wrong time. He was at precisely the time that the Father had appointed. He had come for that very purpose, to die on the cross for your sin, to pay the penalty that you will pay yourself if you don't receive the penalty that Jesus made for you. You repent. Repent means, Lord, I'm going to go your way, not my way. I'm going to follow you. You may be new to the Bible, you may be new to the church, you don't know what all that entails, but you don't care right now. What you care about is, Jesus is Lord and Savior, and I'm going to follow Him. And as I learn what He tells me to do, by God's grace, I will do it. You repent, and you receive Jesus Christ. When we bow and pray, you pray to God in your own words, from your heart to Him, acknowledging that, yes, I'm a sinner and I believe that Jesus is the only answer to that sin. I ask you to forgive me. And I give my life to you. I'm going to follow you, Lord, with my life. Let's bow together. Father, again, we thank you for the blessing of being able to open your book, learn from it in this matter of prayer especially, something that I need personally, something that our church needs corporately. And so thank you for instructing us. And I pray that in the year to come and years to come, that we will then become a church that prioritizes what you do, spiritual matters, and that we learn how to pray from the examples that you have given in, in your word. And as a, a praying church, that you will be pleased to answer many of those prayers to the praise of your glory. We will be sure to give that praise to you. Lord, for anyone who came into this room without having a relationship with you through the Lord Jesus Christ, we ask you to do what only you can do, to move upon the heart, to turn that heart to you right now, such that they see their need for the Lord Jesus Christ and receive him 
by acknowledging their sin, acknowledging his, his work on the cross and his lordship. And Lord, we'll give you the praise for that as well. Help us this week as we pray. Help us to pray better as a result of what you have taught us. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand together now for a closing song.